All right. Philippians chapter four, we've been going for about the last 12 weeks, verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And as I have been leading some of those sermon series that we've been going through, at least from my end, whenever I come back to these chapters in the Bible, I feel like I'm going to have a bit of a deeper understanding and fuller vision, having taken the time to study it and to preach through it verse by verse. And we come this morning to close out the book. Verses 10 through 23 are what we're going to be covering here after the introduction. And the subject of the message this morning is the rejoicing church is a giving church. The rejoicing church is a giving church. The theme for the series that we have picked for the book of Philippians is always rejoicing. 19 times in this short epistle, the apostle Paul uses the phrase for joy or rejoicing. Though he's writing this letter to the church while he's in prison, being persecuted by the Roman emperor Nero, who in a few years would take his life and put him to death for serving the Lord, he is not depressed. He's not downbeat. He's not discouraged. Rather, he's full of life. He's full of hope. He's full of joy. Likewise, this church is a model church in many ways. He addressed a couple of times the issue of unity. And as we said last week, even mentioned two ladies by name and said in front of the whole church, tell them that they be of like mind in the Lord. Other than that, we really find not even a hint of rebuke for this church. Rather, we find Paul, we find Paul if the Lord will help me get my words out, praising this church And that they were a rejoicing church as well that was full of the joy of the Lord. Our text tells us this morning that this church had a heart to serve the Lord and they had a heart to give to the Lord's work. The story goes that one time a man died and he found a way to have all of his earthly goods translated into one piece of gold and he took it with him to the gate of heaven. It's not a true story, okay? It's just used to illustrate a point. And he came knocking at the door of heaven and the angel said, you can't bring anything in with you. He said, but this represents my life's work. This represents what I gave my whole life to. I want to bring this into heaven with me. He said, well, I'm going to have to go ask somebody because I don't think I'm supposed to let you bring it in. And he went to Peter and he said, this guy has something he wants to bring with him into heaven. And Peter said, what is it? And the angel said, I'm not really sure, but it looks like a big chunk of pavement. And the truth is the Bible tells us that the streets in heaven are laid with gold and that which we give our lives to down here and kill for and cheat other people really means nothing to God. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not in short supply. He has all of the resources to meet our needs and how foolish it would be for us to live our life for money when indeed in heaven it's nothing but a piece of pavement that we will walk upon. Money is not sinful. It's not wrong. It's actually a biblical thing and a good thing to work hard and be industrious and save and invest. And when you do that, if you can stay out of debt and have more money than you need for your basic necessities, then you're able to care for your family. You're able to give to the work of the Lord and to the poor and to other worthy causes. But the truth is, when we give our money, when we use it as a tool, it's something that we can use for good. And the Bible teaches us it's something that we can use for God. Now, this is not going to be a sermon about give more. You all need to give more because we need more money. 
we have a box on the back wall. And if you feel led of the Lord to give, you can drop it in there. You can do it online. And I'm getting to the place where I don't even look anymore because I have people helping me about who gives and who doesn't give because I'm not concerned with who gives what or doesn't. But the text this morning tells us of an example of a local New Testament church who came together and gave towards a specific cause. And what they were giving to was the missions work of carrying the gospel around the globe. Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. And what he was, was a missionary. He would travel to a city where they did not yet know anything about Christianity. And he would go into the temple on the Sabbath day and begin first to witness to the Jews and tell them, take your understanding of the Old Testament framework and then look at the life of Christ and realize Jesus is the Messiah. He's Lord. You need to receive him. And after he converted some of the Jews, he would go out publicly into the marketplace and to gathering places where men would discuss, would meet to discuss ideas. And he would tell them about Jesus. And that's how these churches got started. We studied from the book of Acts how Paul and Barnabas came into the, the city of Philippi and preached and people started getting saved. And now 10 years later, he's writing this book to a local church that was established because he as a missionary traveled there to preach the word of God. Paul was a missionary. You could probably call him the greatest of all time. He had incredible results that anyone would be envious of. And to me, the whole idea of missions work sometimes seems so difficult and strange. People are going to give their lives to learn about another culture. And they're going to take missions dollars from local churches in the United States of America and travel to some country where they look differently than everyone. And everyone has a different background and a different religion. And they're going to go there and try to give them the gospel. To me, that, that seems so hard and it seems so difficult. But yet it is what God ordained in his word. Paul was a well-trained missionary. They didn't just throw him out there, but he was educated. He could speak multiple languages. He tailored his message to the Jews when he was preaching to them. And he tailored his message to the Gentiles and the Greeks and the heathen when he was preaching to them. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to be born of a virgin. He lived 33 years, never once sinned, the scriptures tell us. They crucified him. He rose again. And before he ascended back to heaven, he looked at his disciples and he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So the great commission that the Lord has given us is to preach the gospel, see people saved, see them baptized, and then see them discipled by teaching them everything that Jesus taught. Part of what Jesus taught was to be missions-minded, to give the gospel. And the goal is that through the local New Testament church, all of them around the world working to see the gospel go forth, the goal is that every single person alive on the planet would be able to hear that Jesus is Lord. He died for your sins. And if you will turn to him in repentance and faith and trust what he did on the cross, not your good works or anything else, you can be saved. You can have peace with God. Missions is ordained by God and it actually has worked. It worked since the first century when the Great Commission was instituted, and it still continues to work today. Although 
legally prohibited from preaching Christianity in China until 1858, American missionaries throughout the decades have gone to China and fought through language and cultural barriers to spread the word of the Bible and to convert Chinese people to Christianity. The first American missionaries arrived in China during the 1830s and the 1840s. And over the four past four decades, the statisticians tell us that Christianity has grown faster in China than anywhere else in the world. And a lot of the times we as Americans want to witness to somebody and see somebody come to Christ right that instant. And it's wonderful if that happens. But these people have to go where there's so many barriers. And they say that a missionary going into a field that is predominantly Muslim should by average expect it to take seven years to see one convert because there's so many barriers to the gospel. But as American missionaries went to China and decade after decade and for a couple of centuries now preach the gospel and do the best to make disciples and then train the nationals to be able to lead the churches... One researcher from Boston University has estimated that the Christian community in China has grown from 1 million to 100 million. And we may think that America would be the best mission field because we have the freedom to preach the gospel. But the truth is that the work of God is not dependent upon how friendly the local government is or the political climate is. Those 12 disciples... Those 11 disciples then added a 12th and the 120 that met in the upper room in Jerusalem after Christ ascended to heaven began with just them. Then the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people in Jerusalem were saved and baptized and added to the church in one day. And they got serious about the work of the Great Commission. And 2,000 years later, we're sitting here this morning because they obeyed the command of Christ. And they said in the book of Acts, when they saw the apostles coming, they said, here come they which turn the world upside down. And they literally turned the world on its head for Christ. Not because the government passed laws that said, we're going to fund the work of the church. We're going to be friendly to them. But the Bible account and the historical account tells us that nearly every single one of those apostles that started out following Jesus were put to death just like Christ was. Paul was killed, beheaded, and burned by Nero. So was Peter. So were many of the Christians. But in spite of those challenges under hard persecution, the Holy Spirit empowered the church to do the work. And the sad truth is that sometimes when all of the laws are friendly to us, we get apathetic. We get cold. We take for granted what we have. But in China, it's illegal to gather for worship. And sometimes when they sing, they mouth out the words quietly to their hymns because if they sing too loud and someone reports them, the government will beat down the door, drag them away and take them to prison. Yet people are getting saved and they say a hundred million Christians are in China because of the mission's work of God's people consistently sowing the seed, trusting the Lord for when he would give the harvest. It would be interesting. I didn't get all of the statistics, but I know that in the Philippine Islands, American missions dollars have been given to a super high amount. And I know personally of several missionaries that are there in the Philippines preaching the gospel, some whom my dad knew when he was younger. And Paul Chapel recently went to preach a meeting in Manila and over 10,000 people attended that meeting. And Christianity has grown. I'm not saying it's all just because of America, 
But I believe American missions dollars have done more to fund the gospel going around the world than probably any other donations from any other country in history. And history is full of examples of missionaries who gave their life to serve the Lord and give the gospel. One such famous missionary was David Brainerd. He was saved at 19 years old and entered Yale University with a vision for his future. In his third year, he was overheard saying that one of his professors had no more grace than a chair. And because of that, he got expelled. He wrote letters of apology. He went in person. He did everything he could to say, please don't hold that against me. Give me another chance. But he lost all appeals and couldn't go back to Yale University. But throughout this process, God burdened him to reach the Native American Indians who did not know the gospel. And he gave his life to do so and traveled nearly 15,000 miles on horseback to go around to these different Indian groups and give them the gospel. He persevered through difficulties. He once said, here am I, Lord, send me, send me to the ends of the earth, send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service, and to promote thy kingdom. God granted his request. He became a missionary. He was only able to serve for four short years. He had feeble health, and his broken body could not keep up with the rigorous work of this missionary life. Furthermore, Brainerd was reported to have suffered from depression and loneliness. Yet he was faithful to his calling. And he loved these Indian people that he knew Christ loved. In his work and faith until he died from tuberculosis on October 9th, 1747, when he was only 29 years old. Pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote a biography entitled The Life of David Brainerd. And it began to spread and it had a massive influence on the body of Christ and encouraged many other missionaries such as William Carey, Adoniram Judson, and Jim Elliott to live for Jesus Christ. One life that was willing to listen to the Lord and change directions and say, rather than studying to be a professor or a teacher or to make money, I will give my life to the Lord. He lived four years and died. And some people could say, what a waste. But it was not a waste because he was in the center of God's will. And God took his obedience and spread it far beyond what he could have done or what he did, humanly speaking. And that's what the Lord does. He says, give to me and I'll take your gift and I'll expound it far beyond what you could ever do in your life. William Carey was the man who was inspired by hearing the story of David Brainerd. He is known as the father of modern missions. He was an English Baptist preacher who became the first missionary to India. He is also known for translating the entire Bible into that local language. Carey was born in England to Anglican parents. He began a shoemaking apprenticeship at 14 and later became a shoemaker. When William Carey was 17, one of his fellow apprentices taught him the scripture and he believed. By the way, what is the example in the Bible and all throughout history? The church grows not just by putting a sign out by the road and saying, well, if people want to come, they'll come. But it's through the people who are following the Lord, being personally involved in the lives of others and inviting them to come to Christ, to come to the church service, to come to the small groups where they can begin to interact with other Christians and hear the gospel. That's how the Lord grows his church. William Carey, now saved, started studying the Bible seriously. 
He never received a formal education, but he was exceptionally talented with languages. He taught himself Greek, Hebrew, Dutch, and French while working as a cobbler. And by age 31, Kerry could read the Bible in seven languages. And God's work is not dependent upon us being an educated people. It's dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But we should not think because we are called to serve the Lord that we have any less of a responsibility to study and to be diligent, to be educated in all things that will help us serve the Lord. And especially in the scriptures. Kerry quickly became known for his biblical knowledge. And in 1783, he was invited to preach every other Sunday at a Baptist church. He continued working the next six years as a cobbler to support his family. And then he became a full-time pastor of another Baptist church. One day during a minister's meeting, Kerry suggested the local church send their missionaries overseas. I've been to some minister's meetings. I've been to some good ones that were helpful. And I've also been to some and heard of a whole lot that weren't very helpful at all. And when preachers get together, they tend to get into a comparison contest and sadly begin to put others down and look for ways that they can separate themselves as better. Kerry had read the biography of David Brainerd and he felt burdened to preach Christ to the unreached nations. And he said to the other pastors, we need to give everything we can to take the gospel to those who have not heard about Christ. But he was shut down by another minister who famously said, young man, sit down, sit down and be still. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting either you or me. And whether that comes from a theological framework that says, well, nobody can really choose to get saved and God will just capture some and make them saved whether they want to be or not. And the rest, God says, go ahead and go to hell or not. If we have that attitude, that's not the attitude that Christ had. That's not the command of the scriptures. William Carey was known for the saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. In 1973, he left behind the comforts of the United States and went to India. And he stayed there 41 years, faithfully serving the Lord, translated the Bible, led hundreds to Christ, founded a college to train workers and inspired many others to go. We could go on and on, but I've spoken before of Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma or modern day Myanmar, I think it's called. And he stayed there for 15 years, year after year after year. No one got saved. No one came to his meetings. A wife died. Multiple children died. Another wife died. And he kept staying there serving the Lord. And as he continued to sow the seed by the end of his life, he had started a number of churches, seen a number of people make conversions to the faith. And to this day, every year, I believe in the month of July, they have a day in Burma that's called Adoniram Judson Day, where the Christian churches that had exploded even after his death give thanks to God for this man who served the Lord to see the gospel given. David Livingston went to Africa, served through much heartache and sickness and loss of family members. But many people came to the Lord and he left a legacy of Christianity behind him. And when he died, his family said, send us his body. It's going to be buried in the next to all of his relatives. And the people of Africa said, you can have his body. 
but his heart belongs to Africa and they literally removed his heart from his body and buried it in the ground because he left behind his home and comforts and says, I will serve the Lord where he calls me to go. That's where I will give my heart. Here's some famous quotes by missionaries throughout history. The attribution of the quote will be on the bottom there. I'll just read the quotes for time's sake. Beginning with William Carey, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. You have been speaking about William Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. And this morning, that should be the goal of every Christian to say, like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, but he must increase. And whether or not our work that we do for the Lord begins to be known decades later as a famous missions work or not, It doesn't matter because if we give our life in simple, sincere servitude to the Lord Jesus Christ, then it glorifies Him. And that's what our goal is. I am not afraid of failure. I am afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Depend on God. He says, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He is too wise a God to frustrate His purposes for a lack of funds. And He can just as easily supply them ahead of time as afterwards. And He much prefers doing so. Some wish to live within the sound of church and chapel bell, C.T. Studd said. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Only one life will soon be passed, He also said. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The church that does not evangelize will fossilize. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, Spurgeon said, it is in the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. To follow Jesus is to go to war. Now, all of this was funded by the giving of God's people. All of this was aided by people and churches who said, we will give some of what we have so that others can go and preach the gospel. And multiple independent Baptist churches around the United States of America give extraordinary amounts to missions in a year through faith promise and percentage-based budgeting. In 2021, the Southern Baptist Convention gave $200 million to worldwide missions through their cooperative program. And throughout history, let me give you a couple of brief introductory verses, and then we will get to our text, I promise. God's work has always been funded by God's people. In Exodus 36, they were building the tabernacle and people were bringing free offerings. This was not an offering that they were commanded to bring and give like some of them were in the Old Testament. This was, they said, we want to build the tabernacle. So whatever you can give, give it. If you know how to fix something, come help build. If you have materials, bring the materials. And all the men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came every man from his work which they made. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it, and too much. The Lord's blessed us. We're doing good, but I can't say we've gotten to that point yet where we have to tell people, stop giving. We can't handle everything. But the point being Old Testament or new, God's people had a heart to not 
out of necessity or grudgingly, but to freely look and say, let me give to the Lord to fund His work as I can. Christ said, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And I don't have time to go all the way into the parable he was telling in the story, but nearly all of the Bible commentators I read after agree that in this verse, Jesus says, use yourselves the mammon of unrighteousness to make friends. Mammon is wealth or wages. But Christ was not simply saying, use your money to make friends, but he says that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. In other words, we believe Christ was saying, take the mammon of unrighteousness, the wealth and wages of this world, and use it to win friends that will one day receive you into an everlasting habitation when you die. Like the song that says, thank you for giving to the Lord. And if you've ever heard that before, the one, the, the person dies and goes to heaven not knowing if their work mattered for the Lord. And one person came and said, you taught my Sunday school class. And one day when you prayed, I asked Jesus to save me. And that's why I'm here. And another one said, remember when the missionary came to your church and showed you the pictures that touched your heart and made you cry and you gave. And God took that gift and I was saved. And I'll show, I can talk more about that verse later if you want, but we believe Christ was saying you use the wealth of this world that when you fail or die, there will be people who receive you into everlasting habitations in the kingdom of heaven itself. Our money is literally a tool that we can use to see more people in heaven someday. And that glorifies God and it thrills our heart. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, Mark 12, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. I don't have the modern day equivalent, but it wasn't very much at all. It was just a little bit. And the rich people had been coming and the Pharisees loved to blow a trumpet in the temple. And they'd say, blow that trumpet. And everybody would look and say, what's going on? And then the Pharisee would drop in their offering so that people would know, wow, aren't they spiritual? But Jesus said, when you give, do it in secret. Don't let people know what you're giving. When you fast and pray, pray in your closet. Don't tell anybody because we do it for God, not to be seen of men. So the widow takes and throws in this little piddly amount in the donation box. And he called unto his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. In other words, she said, I don't have enough to eat the rest of the day, but I believe God wants me to give what I have. And I don't know the rest of the story, but I believe there's a God in heaven who met every need that that lady had. And Christ said her gift was the greatest. He's not concerned with quantity. He's concerned with quality. And we were talking some about money this morning. But it goes to every area. We're called to be good stewards, not just of our money, but of our time, of our efforts, of our labor. We give to God what we can, and then God blesses us through our efforts. Not by how much we can give, but by how wholeheartedly we give to the Lord. Paul said, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. 
Paul wanted to take up a collection for the Christians who were persecuted in Jerusalem, being dragged out of their homes and put to death by Herod and by the Jews. And he writes to the church at Corinth and he says on the first day of the week, set aside, lay in store an offering as God has prospered you, that there be no gatherings when I come. In other words, by implication, we believe that when they met on the first day of the week, they were giving to the gathering as they had laid by in store because Paul said, don't just take up an offering whenever I'm here, but consistently set in front of the people the idea of giving to the Lord's work. But their offering here was principled. It was planned ahead of time. It was proportional in proportion to how God had prospered them. And it was personal. Everyone making up their own mind. Let me see what the Lord would have me to do. They didn't have a two-hour invitation where they said, you need to give more and give more and give more or else you're not allowed to go home. He said, think about it ahead of time. Pray, look at how God has blessed you and give what you can to this cause of helping the persecuted Christians. Okay, let's go to our text. Number one, the heart of the rejoicing church. We pick it up in Philippians 4.10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, more rejoicing from Paul, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye also were careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Your care of me, he says, flourished again. The word means to be made alive, to be revived, to be green again, like a plant that had gone dormant, but now begins to blossom again. He says, you were careful to want to give to me. And the word careful there in that context means minded. They were thinking about it. They wanted to help. The apostle Paul was on their heart. They wanted to give to him, but they literally lacked the opportunity. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know how he was doing. They couldn't just use PayPal or something like that in that day and age. They had to go physically find him and deliver the gifts to him. And earlier on in the book, Paul is praising them because if you remember the story, he'll come up in our text again. They sent Epaphroditus to go find Paul and to deliver the collection to them. And Epaphroditus took the collection and gave it to Paul to help meet his need. And he got sick and almost died. And Paul was crying out to God that Epaphroditus wouldn't die in the midst of trying to serve the Lord this way because that would discourage the heart of this church. And it sounds in chapter 2 like he's rebuking them. But what he was actually saying is they wanted to give, but they didn't have opportunity, but they never stopped thinking about Paul. They wanted to help. He was on their heart. This was their spiritual father who gave them the gospel. And they were generous. And I believe that God's people should seek to be a generous people. And our church should seek to be a generous church when the Lord provides the resources to do so. So that was the heart of the church. They wanted to help Paul. Number two, the heart of the apostle. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul's saying, I'm rejoicing that you sent me money to help me out. But my rejoicing and hope is not really in the money because God's been teaching me and I have learned that whatever my condition is, I'm going to be content, be grateful to God and say thank you. Whether that's on a cold prison floor with fresh stripes on my back or whether that's staying in a nice place and having plenty to eat and friends around. I've made up my mind. I've set my heart to it. I've learned that whatever my condition is, I'm going to be content. Albert Barnes says on this verse, a contented mind is an invaluable blessing and is one of the fruits of religion in the soul. 
It arises from the belief that God is right in all His ways. Contentment comes from believing that God is always right. Why should we be impatient, restless, discontented? What evil will be remedied by it? What want supplied? What calamity will be removed? He says the members of the Episcopal Church beautifully pray every day, give us minds always contented with our present condition. No prayer can be offered which will be more deeply rooted in happiness than this prayer. And when we are content, instead of complaining, looking at things that other people have and wishing we had it, we're saying, I praise you, Lord, you're right. And we're giving him thanks. But when we complain, we're actually complaining at God, that God's not giving us what we want. Paul says, I've learned to always be content. Then he says, to illustrate this point, I know both how to be abased, meaning humbled, and I know how to abound, meaning being blessed. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The word there, instructed, is basically saying, I have been taught. I have learned. This doesn't come easily to us to say, Lord, whether I'm hungry or full, whether I'm in need or abounding, I'm content. I'm happy. I know how to handle this. That doesn't come naturally to our flesh. Christians are not. So we have to learn it. We have to be instructed. We have to purposefully commit our heart to say, Lord, whether you give me much or little or whether I perceive it to be much or little, would you help me to know how to go through everything and be thankful for it and learn it like Paul did? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. One of the most famous and beautiful verses in all the Bible. Yet there's two verses in this chapter that I'm afraid are taken out of context all of the time. And there's a problem when we go through the Bible and we cherry pick one verse and just look at that verse instead of what comes before it and what comes after it. And some of you, I've seen you wearing the shirts that say, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I'm afraid that's what people often do. I remember when I was a young teenager on the TV, I saw Joyce Myers preaching to the church, which we do not believe is biblical or following the instructions that Christ gave. And she said, someone once asked me, how can you claim authority to preach? And she said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's how I claim my authority. But the verse is not saying I can proclaim myself to be Superman, jump off the building and fly. In context, Paul is saying, whether I'm blessed, whether I'm beaten, whether I have money, or whether I'm broke, I can do it all. Not me, but I can do it through Christ because Christ commanded me to do it. He commissioned me to do it. And I know that God's not going to give me a task and then abandon me before I can complete it. Paul is speaking of trials, of being content and not complaining or being in want. He's saying, I know by now that I can bear any trial perform any duty I'm assigned. Paul says, I can do what is required of me in any circumstance because I know where my strength comes from and it is Christ. Paul is simply saying, God will require nothing of me that I cannot perform. If God calls me to do it, He will empower me to go through it. Verse 13 can, however, be taken out of context. Paul's comment is specifically referring to the ability of a Christian to endure under hardship and persecution. Despite well-meaning use of the words, this text does not teach that a Christian is empowered to accomplish any task simply because they are saved. So I'm not saying cut it out of our vocabulary. We should use it. We should say, I can do all things. But it's not just, I can do all things. 
And it's not, I can do all things through Christ because I told Christ what I can do and He said, okay, do it. It's in the context of doing what God has ordained, what He's commanded, what He calls us to go through and do. He says, I will help you go through it. And Paul had learned that by this point in his life. So he continues on. Notwithstanding, even though he's saying, hey, even though I can be abased or I can abound, you have done well in that you did communicate with my affliction. You did do well that you gave to my needs, that you took up a collection of money within the church, gave it to Epaphroditus, and he delivered it to me. The word communicate in this context means having fellowship with, partaking with. Paul is literally saying, not just you gave me money, he's saying you took part with me in my affliction for the sake of the gospel. During 2020, I heard a story of a church that in California, they said, you will not meet, you will not sing. And they said, we think we're going to because the Lord, it was a Baptist church. The Lord wants us to do so. And the city hit them with a fine. And they said, every Monday, we'll hit you with a massive fine. And Monday, we might come get your pastor and throw him in jail if you don't knock it off. Again, I'm not saying it wasn't very much. I'm not saying this to say, look at me. But I and some people I know got online and gave to them. But we weren't just saying, hey, we want you to have some money. We were saying you're being persecuted for the cause of Christ and for standing for the truth. And I'm going to vote with my dollars, as it were, to say, I identify with you. I'm supporting you. I want to help you. I've got your back during this time. You're being persecuted. So what this church was saying was not just, we want to give you the money. The money was necessary to meet the need. But they said, Paul, as you sit in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel... We want you to know we've got your back. We support you. We identify with you even in your persecution. And at that church, probably through the pastors and the deacons mentioned in chapter 1, they probably went around and started to say, Paul, did you hear he's in jail? Did you hear he's having a tough time? Now we've located him. He's in Rome. I've got some that I can contribute to give. How about you? And they all went and found some that they could give and they took up that offering and they gave it to Paul. And yes, it helped. I was reading this week. They think that in Rome, they would just throw you in jail. And if you wanted anything that was nice or of comfort, you had to pay for it yourself. So the money came in pretty handy. It's, it's how the lights go on. It's how the air conditioners go on. But Paul didn't primarily point to the comforts of the money. He points a few different times to the spiritual blessing. And he says, good job. You identified with me in my affliction. And in doing so, you were standing up and saying, I stand for Christ. I stand with Paul. They did it for Paul. They did it for the sake of the gospel. But ultimately, they did it for God. And Paul felt helped and encouraged. Yes, the money paid the bills, but it also let him know that he was not alone. Okay, you did good in your giving. Verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when he first preached the gospel to them, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. We don't know why these other churches didn't give, but no other church was keeping up with Paul and saying, what do you need in your persecution? The book of Acts tells us that he had to flee Macedonia. He had to leave because the Jews were persecuting him. And the brethren had to step in like an intervention and say, get out of here and go. They're going to kill you. And he departed. 
And, and I need to study it out more myself, but I was hearing some this week. People say that after that event where he was preaching full time and people were getting saved, they sent him off to Corinth and he began to be a tent maker and just preach the gospel on the Sabbath day as he was allowed. And we find some indication that Paul says, when I came to that point, I came in weakness. He was away from the brethren. He was away from full time ministry. He was discouraged. But we find out that this church at Philippi, not just when he was in Rome, but when he got kicked out of Macedonia, they sent him an offering. He tells the church at Corinth, I didn't take wages from you for a while, but the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied everything that I needed. Probably here speaking of the Philippian church who heard Paul got kicked out of this part of the country. They tried to kill him. He's down. He's discouraged. He's working to make tents for the sake of the Lord and the gospel. And the brethren came and they said, the church at Philippi would like to give you this gift to help pay your bills so you can serve the Lord more. And it meant a lot to him. He remembered it. It came back that he remembered you were the church who remembered me and gave to me. And then he says in verse 16 of Philippians 4, For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. At that time when he was planning the church in Thessalonica, they sent to him multiple times to see if he had what he needed and to give him what he needed to go forward. Now Paul says, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. And the skeptic would say, Yeah, right, Paul. You're telling them to give money that comes to you, not because you actually want to enjoy the money, but you want it for their benefit. Okay, that's what the skeptic would say. But he proved it by his life. He proved it because when he went to a city like Corinth where they didn't know the Lord, they came from a background of Greek paganism and they were used to spiritual leaders who would rob them blind of their money of their wives, of anything else that they could. And Paul said, I want to teach these churches about giving and receiving, but I'm not going to do it yet because they're so new in their faith. So he worked during the day as a tent maker. And at night and on the Sabbath day, he preached the gospel. He labored and labored and labored and didn't even try to teach them about giving. He says, not because I'm not worthy of it or that it's not ordained by God, but because I care about you, not about your money. And what do we see from this verse? We see the heart of Paul that there are sincere people who serve the Lord for a lifetime, not for money or for praise or for anything else, but because they love the Lord. Paul did not beg. John Philip said, I was reading after him on this passage this week, and he said, Paul did not beg for money. And he said many missions letters, they beg for money, but that's not what Paul did. He just left it to the Lord. And the church gave out of a sincere heart. And he proves that people do serve the Lord. We'll talk about George Mueller some other time, but he had a philosophy of, I will never let my needs be known. And he ran orphanages for children in England. And multiple times they would sit down at the table to pray and thank God for the meal. And the meal wasn't there yet. And then people showed up and gave it to them. And God supplied the need. And he kept financial reports, but he refused to publish them until the financial reports looked really good because he didn't want to look like he was soliciting giving. And I'm not saying deputation is wrong or fundraising is wrong. We see that in the Bible too. But Paul's heart was, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to force people to give, but if they give from their heart, then God will bless them. And as I said, there are many people who serve the Lord for a lifetime out of a heart of sincerity, not of greed. 
Research shows that half of all pastors in the United States preach to 65 or less every service. And 40 to 60% of the, the pastors are dependent on another job outside of the church for income. Ministry is not a labor of love. It's a calling, not a career. And especially in this day and age, I tell the church and encourage you, we need men and women to surrender the Lord's service. But not expecting to get out of college and step in a pulpit where a thousand people hang on your every word. It's to go somewhere where a church is in decline, where they need help, and where you can labor in and out of the church out of a heart of love to help the Lord. Those are the servants we need. And those are the servants that God has provided Himself he says, it's not because I want a gift, but I desire fruit to abound to your account. Paul says, through your giving, God's going to give fruit. Souls are going to get saved. And it's going to go to your account. You are going to get a blessing if you are a giving person in a giving church. And this rejoicing church was a giving church. And God says that I give a blessing to you through the gift. Verse 18, but I have all, the margin says, or I have all things. I've gotten the offering that you've sent me. I've received it all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. Then he describes it as an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. We went through earlier how Epaphroditus had brought the offering to Paul from that church. And Paul here again references, I've received it of him. And when he calls it a sweet smell and a sacrifice, he's likening it to a gift that was given in the Old Testament when they would give burnt offerings and offerings of thanksgiving and of praise and they would burn incense and it was a sweet smell. He says, God is pleased by your giving to God's work. It's well-pleasing to God. He says, God is pleased when we give. And he also says, the fruit will abound to your account. A wonderful verse in Matthew 10, 41, where Jesus says, if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you will receive a prophet's reward. In other words, what he's saying in this verse is if you look at a prophet who's serving the Lord and you receive him, you bless him, you're going to receive the same reward that the prophet received. So even though this church at Philippi could not travel the globe and found churches like Paul did, someday they will be in heaven and God will be recognizing the fruit and the crowns that were given. And to this church at Philippi, he'll say, all of these souls that were saved at Corinth and at Rome, you have part of the reward. And they may think, how? Because you gave to Paul and enabled Paul and prayed for Paul. So you share in Paul's reward because you gave to God. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that encouraging to know that if we can't do what other people do, but we support the work of the Lord, God says, I count that to your credit, the same as the person I'm using. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple. Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. It's not wrong to work. It's not wrong to have money. But what's in your 401k, the day you die will do you no good ever. You cannot take it with you. But if in the name of Jesus Christ you give a place to a prophet of the Lord to stay or a drink of cold water to a little child, your reward is eternal. It will never be lost. Therefore, Christ said, lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth, but treasure in heaven. Because what you're piling up down here can be stolen. The moth can eat it up. The rusting can corrupt it. But when you give to the work of the Lord, when you see a soul saved, when you serve the Lord with your heart and time, it's never going to be lost. So Jim Elliott said, 
You're not a fool if you give up that which you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. Number three, the heart of God. We see the heart of the church was to give. The heart of Paul was to see the church blessed, not just to greedily take more for his own sake. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Again, what is the context? They were a giving church. This was not somebody ignoring all of the Bible and living however they want all of the time and sinning against God and not caring that the Bible says it's wrong and then saying, ah, God's going to supply all my needs. It was in the context of a church that was faithfully giving to the work of the Lord. And Paul says, I am confident, I believe, not because God gave me some divine revelation, but according to the general principles of the eternal word of God, I have every confidence that God will supply your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, because God is not short for supply. And as you are generous with God, God will be generous with you. Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. The same measure that we decide to give, it will be given back to us. And I believe as we are generous people and give to the work of the Lord, God will see that and say, I honor that and I will bless you in your time of need. Out One more time, Albert Barnes, but my God shall supply all your need. That is, you have shown your regard for me as a friend of God by sending to me in my distress. And I have confidence that in return for all of this, God will supply all your needs when you are in circumstances of necessity. Paul's confidence in this seems not to have been founded on any express revelation, but on the general principle that God would regard their offering with favor. Please listen to these words. I know it's warm. I know we we go long. I know this is older English, but look at this phrase. Nothing is lost, even in the present life, by doing good. In thousands of instances, it is abundantly repaid. In other words, what we look at and say, I don't want to give this to God, I hold it back. If we give something to try and do good in the name of Christ, it's never a loss to us. Even in this life, if we... Look, I'm not saying give 20 in the plate Sunday and you'll get 40 in the mailbox Monday. That's not what the Bible says. But there is a principle of God saying, you give me what you can and I will give you what you need. Oh, Lord, help me. The rich young ruler came to Christ and said, I've kept the law perfectly. I've never sinned. What do I do to get to heaven? Someone with that attitude isn't ready to believe. They have to know they're a sinner first. So Christ looked to the the source of his pride and he said, okay, take all your wealth, sell it and give it to the poor. And follow me. That's not the Bible way to heaven, but it was a way to break his heart down, get him following Christ and get him to come to Christ. And he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of riches. Then Peter piped up as he always did. And he said, Lord, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have? Yeah, Lord, we left behind that glorious life of fishing boats. That guy won't come follow you, but we do. What do we get out of it? Jesus told a long parable that the point was to tell Peter, don't complain, trust God, and whatever I give you will be what's right. Whatever I give you will be just. It's lawful for me to do what I will with mine own. But then the kind heart of Christ looked to Peter after teaching him that lesson, and he said, there is no man that hath forsaken houses, lands, fathers, or mothers, but that shall not receive an hundredfold in this lifetime and eternal life in heaven. What did you give up for the Lord? What did you quit and leave behind? 
What did you give away financially? Jesus said, if you did it for the cause of Christ, you get a hundred times better of a blessing in this life. Oh, and then you get to live in heaven forever too. Don't ever complain at God for what He's called you to give. My God shall supply all your need. I believe God says, give me what you can and I'll give you what I need. I'll give you what you need. And so many times in the last few years, you think about being a pastor and then you jump up there and it feels a whole lot different when you're actually trying to do it. And sometimes I feel dry. I feel discouraged. I feel like I don't have vision that I feel like consistently God gives me what I need. He gives me direction for what to preach. He gives me the Holy Spirit. He gives me life. He gives me food from the Word to share. And I praise His name. Last October, I was talking to, to somebody about and they said, how's the church doing? And I said, I don't know. We're trying. We had new people come and most of the new people left. But we're giving it to the Lord. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying. And then two weeks later, the day of the concert, Sissy came in because she had a flyer that was left on our door. And James and Sheila came in because they saw the Facebook ad. And Santiago and Carmen and their kids came in. And they didn't even know it was a concert, but they just came that day. And Moses and his family and Jerry and Andrew, and I'm sure more that I'm forgetting And God, though we're not mighty in number, I believe He's saying just keep obeying. Keep doing what I tell you to do. Give what you can and I'll supply your need. Paul already mentioned the importance of prayer in this chapter. In verse 6, he said, give everything by prayer. Ian Bounds said, the church today is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better not new organizations or more in novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And I believe the books that we need in the, the library are not books of how to. Somebody writes a book in the 1970s, how to get your church to 300. That's going to be totally outdated 40 years later. But a book on prayer, holiness, repentance, hermeneutics, exegesis, books of the Bible teaching us the truths of the Word of God. These things do not expire. So what I'm saying is the church does not need to go on a campaign to get the, the community to fund our needs or go to the city of Plano and say, can we have some of your funds? But to say, God, help us preach the gospel, live holy lives, give the Word of God and trust He will help supply whatever the need is. Four verses. Now unto God be our Father. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you, and all the saints salute you. Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Who is Caesar? Caesar was a name for the Roman emperor. They passed it along to everyone. And Nero was a Roman emperor who hated God and eventually boiled Christians and took the life of Paul. So most people believe what he's saying is not just people in Nero's family got saved, though some of them might have. But he already said earlier in the epistle that all of the guards and the people in the palace who saw his bonds, saw that he was thrown in prison, but saw that he faithfully lived for the Lord. Because of that, the gospel started getting spread. 
And remember, he said, some people hate me. And they were silent before, but they said, ha, Paul's in jail. And they started preaching. See, Paul is bad. Paul's in jail. But as part of their preaching against Paul, they preached the gospel. And Paul said, I don't care what they say about me. If the gospel is preached, then I rejoice and I will rejoice. And now he gives indication there's a community in Rome itself at the seat of persecution that has seen what has happened to Paul and through the giving of the church at Philippi began to come to the Lord and they were saints. The word saint in the Bible is not somebody who lived and died and we pray to and burn candles to them. The saints are those who are born again. It's the believers of the church. And he said, there's a whole lot of people in Rome and I'm not going to give you their names because that might make them be killed. But I just want you to know of Caesar's household, there's a whole lot of saints and people who have come to know the Lord because of you, because of our service to Him. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. To the Philippians written from Rome by Epaphroditus. Let's bow for prayer. No music at this time. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. If God has spoken to your heart about anything today, lift it up to Him. May we be people who give to the Lord, not money if we don't have it. Who cares if, if we don't have extra money to give? God doesn't care. But our time, our heart, our passion, our soul, our very being, He's worthy of it all. Lord, bless the message today. And as people pray, I pray that our prayers would be heard and that you would bless our feeble efforts to live for you. Let's continue in prayer for just a moment.